Hello everyone, this is The Game Podcast from The Times. I'm Natalie Sawyer. Thank you so much for sticking with us here on The Game Podcast. We're glad we can keep you informed and hopefully entertained in what are very strange times for everyone. Social distancing continues, so joining me remotely are Gregor Robertson and Alison Rudd. Alison, how are you doing? I'm well, thank you Natalie. Enjoying the table tennis in the garden. Oh, lovely you can do that. It's lovely we're having such nice weather. Uh, Gregor, push-ups? Any better than 45, I think it was last time we checked in? Yes, improvement. 48, I'm up to. Oh, great. Uh, yeah, I think uh, I think we should call it at 50. I think uh, I'm going to act like the Scottish Football League system. When we get to, we get to 50, <laughs> that's, a, that's a cut-off point. I think we need to stop talking about that because I'm not going to go much higher than that. <laughs> okay, well, uh, that's fair enough that you want to call it early. But talking of the, the Scottish football, how do you feel about it all? Have you been losing sleep over it? Losing sleep? No, I've had the popcorn out and kind of (laughs) waiting for the next statement, the next accusation or legal threat or you name it. It's been box office stuff, but at the same time, an absolute shambles, really. Um, I mean, it's impossible to know where to start. There's no way I can explain it in uh, a couple of minutes on the podcast, but basically, Scottish football has gone into meltdown for about a week um, and all over a ballot to kind of end end the season now in all three divisions below the, the Scottish Premiership. Um, and somehow it became public knowledge that it was all down to the, the vote of one club, Dundee. Um, and there were vast numbers of kind of accusations and conspiracy theories, theories about about the, the actual voting process. Um, and now Dundee have recast their vote and all the the leagues below the Scottish Premiership are over, so teams teams are promoted. Dundee United have been promoted to the Scottish Premiership. Um, one thing, I mean, nobody's been relegated from the, the top tier yet, um, and there's actually discussions now about restructuring uh, the pyramid. And I, the reason I kind of wanted to mention this, I, I have a feeling that we're going to be having similar discussions uh, in England soon, because... Mm. Um, you know, the longer this goes on, I just feel the less likely it is that we're going to see an end to the season, and that means you need to look for for ways of finishing it, ways of calling it, and that might involve uh, a restructuring of the pyramid, and, and it might be it might be no better time to do it. It's, there's been such a dearth of leadership in every from every stakeholder in British football, basically, um, and I think this could be an opportunity to kind of improve. The, the governance of, of football in this country, really. So just briefly on this, and in, in some ways there could be a positive to come out of what has been a bit of a shambolic week for Scottish football, you're saying? Yeah, no, yeah not if you're a club like Partick Thistle who have been relegated no. and, and still thought they had a good chance of, of staying up in, in the Scottish Championship. So there, there are losers and there, there will be, but you know the reason they haven't done it in, this, in the Premiership in the top flight is because they're you're talking about bigger football clubs and bigger sums of money and bigger sort of risks. Um, so that's why I think, and I, actually the, the, the chairman of Hearts, Anne Budge, is on the the kind of uh, committee to, to look at the restructuring of of, of the yes. of the of the pyramid and she and Hearts are bottom of the, the league. So that's the other thing that's been laid bare is that everyone who's who's in having discussions about this and they all have an interest because everyone on the boards of the governing bodies are board members of from the various football clubs and they have their own 
their own sort of competing interests. So it's a, an absolute farce. And I, basically, I think that we're going to be seeing something similar to this in England soon. Well, no doubt we'll uh, talk about this again uh, a little bit uh, later on as we know more of what's happening with Scottish football, as indeed we will with what's happening in England as well. But coming up, we will discuss Newcastle fans bidding Mike Ashley a less than fond farewell. And we're looking at unsung heroes in some of the greatest teams to ever grace the Premier League. After this. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Mike Ashley's 13-year reign as Newcastle owner appears to be nearing its end after a deal agreed to sell the club to Amanda Staveley's Saudi-backed consortium. It's been a rocky road for Toon fans under Ashley since he bought the club in May 2007 from Freddie Shepherd and Sir John Hall for £134 million. It wasn't a great start as Ashley reportedly did no due diligence on the club and was unaware it was £100 million in debt. But since then, well, it's been a heck of a wild ride. Sam Allardyce axed club legend Kevin Keegan in, and when that didn't work, in came Joe Kinnear. Anyone for a Johan Kebab? Uh, before a final roll of the dice with Alan Shearer in charge, couldn't save the club from relegation. Since then, Chris Hewson, Alan Pardew, John Carver, Steve McLaren, Rafa Benitez, and of course right now, Steve Bruce have all had a go. Three yo-yo moves between the Premier League and Championship and even a fifth-place finish under Alan Pardew's Cockney Mafia. And that's before we even get into the words Sports Direct Arena. Oh, right. Um, Alison, where did it all go wrong for Mike Ashley? <laughs> well, it it went. It stopped, well, he, actually, he was welcomed initially. So it wasn't as if the minute he took over, everyone thought, we don't like the look of him. It was falling out with Kevin Keegan, which is one of the golden rules of living in Newcastle. You don't do that. And he did that. And then people realised this was a chap who just didn't care. He'd do what he felt was right. And as soon as you get a caricature of a person like that, it I think what happens is everything he's done is in that light, is in the light of someone who dared to fall out with Kevin Keegan. And you sort I got the impression sometimes he he almost wanted to live up to the caricature. There's no way you appoint Joe Kinnear as your manager <laughs> and, and and not realise you're you're gonna wind people up. Is it as though he he reveled in that, and and then even though Joe Kinnear, you know, proceeded to tell everyone to f off, he he brought him back in 2013 as director of football, and then he and then Kinnear became even more of a laughable figure. Started telling people he'd won more manager of the year awards than he actually had. It's it was comedy. It was Fawlty Towers style comedy, um, but and I can't help feeling that um, that Ashley sort of enjoyed being the pantomime villain, if you like. <laughs> Um, and you, but you know you want me to keep it brief. I think probably Keegan Kinnear not 
lavishing uh, Rafa Benitez with um, honesty, love and money. And and then ultimately, most recently, trying to keep his sports direct shops open um, when he shouldn't have been trying to do that. So it's, it's sort of bookended with <laughs> two pretty uh, naff things and with lots of mistakes in the middle. But if anyone watched Quiz, the very good ITV drama about the uh, the chap who allegedly coughed his way to winning a million yes. quid on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, there was a wonderful scene at the end of it. I won't spoil it, but there's a wonderful speech by his counsel in court where she talks about confirmation bias. And once you've decided something happened, you can slip into the narrative anything you like to build up a case. And I feel what we've had with Ashley at Newcastle is confirmation bias because not everything he did was terrible. I mean, he was uh, 2015-16, he was the fourth biggest spender in the Premier League. He spent big to make sure they came back when they were relegated. You know, you can imagine the caricature Mike Ashley, the villain Mike Ashley, might think, well, I don't care now. They can, they can just... I'm bored. They can fizzle out. They can they can keep dropping down the divisions. He he's not quite as awful as you might think, but he has made so many mistakes that I just don't think he cared that they were mistakes. I suppose though, and and when you mention at one stage he had dipped into the transfer market quite heavily and 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 did fund the club in that respect. The fact that he didn't do it consistently is what I suppose Newcastle fans will hold against him. Well, I think I think once once it was decided he didn't love the club and I think he'd only been there a year and he, it was clear he wanted out and he wanted to sell and that it's yes it's it's that sort of temporariness to it that sort of sense of not being committed so when he did spend instead of it being something that the fans could say great we're having money spent on us that they were then instead able to say why couldn't you've done that all the time and if you're going to spend spend big so that you can probably properly establish yourself as a as a top six club which is where we belong it, it, it it's it's the lack of um a narrative other than the pantomime villain narrative there's been no clear view on what Ashley thinks is good or bad money to spend at Newcastle and it's a bit like if you're in love with somebody and then one night they take you out to dinner and you think oh it's happening it's happening we're in a proper relationship and then they don't call then they don't call you for six weeks but then they but then they do call you and say why don't we go to the Bahamas together it's it was that sort of thing I mean be yeah be consistent please I love that. Uh, that has so, never so happened perfect. to me, by the way. I was just going to say it. I think we're all thinking it, Gregor. I just didn't want to say it. Um, but what about you, Gregor? Where, where do you think it's all gone wrong for Mike Ashley, who, who obviously came in and, and, and as Alison pointed out at the start, Newcastle fans would have been delighted by a new new man in charge who was perhaps going to splash the cash. Yeah, I think... It, I agree with Alison. I think fundamentally it comes down to the fact that he doesn't understand or or at least sort of em- emphasise with what football means to people, really, to supporters and to a city like Newcastle and what Newcastle represents to that city and its people. He doesn't really understand that. He, you know, he's a fo- he says he's a football fan, but he's a football fan in the way that, say... You know, everyone is in, when a World Cup or a Euros comes around and they, they put on their England strip and, and go down the pub. 
that's the kind of football fan Mike Ashley is. He's a businessman. That's what he loves more than anything. And I think he tried to really run Newcastle pretty much like he he did his his other business, which which in which he's not got a very good track record of looking after uh, his employees or or paying them very well. Um, so I think that's the fundamental kind of starting point for understanding what went wrong with. Uh, with Ashley at Newcastle, he doesn't he doesn't understand what football is, um, and I don't you know there are there are other owners who who many other owners who who invest in football and it's and they see the club as an asset, but I don't think there's been many who have been quite as kind of transparent in their disregard for actually what happens on the pitch. I don't think he really cared as long as as long as Newcastle survived and they got that next tranche of Premier League money. Um, as he said, you know, the FA Cup or cups were were not a priority. These kind of things that that are absolutely anathema to supporters. Um, he really didn't care about. Um, so it was doomed from the start. Um, I agree. You know, I agree. <laughs> joking here. I have to actually, when you said Johan Kebab, I have to joking here with someone I played for um, at Nottingham Forest. Um, and I, you remember there was another Charles Charles in Zogbia. But he, I think he called him insomnia, and you know, <laughs> yes. and Zogbia was really kind of upset about this and and thought he did it on purpose and whatnot. I can absolutely guarantee that he didn't. This is he called me Jeff. Oh, <laughs> Jeff. The first, yeah, the first uh, week he was there, he called me over and uh, after training one day, and he had this long conversation. He kept calling me Jeff, and I didn't have the heart to tell him, and he just stuck. Oh, <laughs> so he called me Jeff for quite. For quite a while. I mean, eventually he did learn my name when he, you know, and played me a few more times. Um, but he, yeah. So the, I think, you know, he was one of the other, there's so many people like, you know, Dennis Dennis Wise, eh, Pardew. I mean, Pardew did well, but even Steve Bruce now. You get the impression that at a time when football has kind of transformed in the 13 years or so that, that uh, Ashley's owned the club, he still appoints people who you get the impression he would enjoy going down the pub with. I agree that Keegan and his treatment of Keegan and Shearer was also that kind of doomed them from the start as well. Alison, I mean, how important is connection then between the owner and the fans? Bear in mind, it seems as though that was lost at Newcastle and has been lost for some time. And with these new owners potentially coming in, it'd be vital they, they have that connection. But is it vital? Do you need that connection? You don't need a deep, meaningful connection, but I think you probably would like some respect, which is why I'm slightly baffled by a lot of the coverage over the past 24 hours, um, saying, oh, you know, oh, what a relief. We're going to get rid of Ashley and welcome in uh, a regime that's clearly going to be using uh, Newcastle for sports washing. I spent yesterday phoning around uh, human rights organisations just to get a feel for exactly what what the Saudi regime has been doing wrong and whether they feel that um, this is sports washing and, and, and you know, how they, they feel about the, the poll that, you know, around 75% of Newcastle fans don't have any uh, moral qualms about about um, the new majority owners because they're just so relieved to get rid of Mike Ashley. And I just think, wow, where, 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 where's, where's, what's going on here that you dislike one individual so much who isn't palatable, but he's not, he's not ordered the execution of a journalist that, 
that has written that. And yet you're prepared to welcome some somebody there who's not buying into your club because they they love the strip or they love the ground or they love the history. They're buying into it because they want to build up their reputation. So I I am slightly baffled by all of that. So I don't I don't think you need to love your owner. I don't think you need to form some sort of ridiculous connection where you need to see them at the games and you need to see them wearing the strip. I think, I think often owners when they wear the strip look stupid anyway. And you know, you just, you just have to have respect, just have respect for them. That's, I think that's all you can mm. say Be, yeah. because it is in many cases a family. And um, just quickly, I know people will say, well, it's not fair. Why, why, why are you putting that on football? Cause governments, you know, lots of governments will carry on doing business with crown prince Mohammed bin Salman. So why, why should, why should, why should football be different if their own governments do business? It's, the point, the difference is that in football, for it to for it to work and for it to be beautiful and for it to be the way we want it to be, is it's a family. It's a family that everyone's working. Whether you're the tea lady or you're the very expensive striker, or on the board of directors, you are all working together for for this strange concept of a club, which which brings together a community and makes you happy or unhappy depending on performance and results. So I think it does matter that you have some respect for the people behind you. Moving it on to, to the subject you were talking about with regards to the human rights issues in Saudi Arabia, Martin Hardy has written about this in the Times uh, headlining, Mike Ashley or, or Saudi's time to reach for the moral compass. He touches on, as you mentioned there, that the murder of the journalist Jamal Khashoggi, who was a critic of the of the country's government. He also talks about that online poll that you, that you mentioned as, as well. Um, and you were talking there about... Um, how everybody in the club has to be one, let's say. Um, there will be some suggesting, Alison, that is it right to ask fans to be the moral compass when many would suggest morality in football has long been thrown out of the out of the window when they will say, well, the fans are the heartbeat of the club, but we are one of the last that everyone thinks about when it comes to football and our clubs. So why should we be asking them to be the moral compass? I would quote back at you what Amnesty International said yesterday, which was sports washing can be countered if interested parties are prepared to break its spell. We would urge fans and the staff of Newcastle to familiarise themselves with the dire human rights situation in Saudi Arabia and be prepared to speak out about it. All All they're asking for is don't welcome with open arms a new owner simply because he's not the old one and they have money at least at least read up on it at least decide what you think about that owner don't just just not i'm not i wouldn't argue it's the fans responsibility because they as you say they don't make those decisions this all this all happens at a level way above they have any influence over really but if if you can counter sports washing by calling it out and asking questions. Asking questions is the best thing you can do. Reading up on it and asking questions instead of welcoming with open arms with clearly not having done any research. Well, in that sense, Gregor, um, I mean, Alison's absolutely right. We, we can all be very blinkered and we can all block out things that we don't want to know about or don't want to read up on and, and, and be aware of. But should we be surprised at this point in time that Newcastle fans don't really care where the money is coming from? 
Uh, you know, I, I'm not sure that, that we could quite go that far saying we, they don't care. I think the 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 poll really was saying that they don't they're willing to accept that if if Mike Ashley leaves, mm. and that says a lot about uh, that kind of corrosive, depressing decade that they've just experienced under under Mike Ashley. Um, and I think what it comes, you know, we're, we're talking about what an owner should be and you know respect is one thing i think actually it comes down to ambition i think there was really no ambition at newcastle and that's what really really hurt the fans you know there was no sense of wanting of of wanting to improve like whether it be that the, the kind of stadium or the training ground or uh or the place that the, the team's kind of position in the table really as i said he's he, as long as they survived he was he was happy his investment was sort of intact. Um, so I can understand. I have sympathy for Newcastle fans for being so kind of desperate to 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 lose to lose Mike Ashley that they're kind of almost turning a blind. They're not turning a blind eye though. And as and Alison makes a great a, a a perfectly kind of valid point that they have to inform themselves and call out things that they that they see that are wrong if this goes through. Um, because as you know, we we seem to be a familiar theme in the last few weeks with all the, all that's going on in football is that football clubs are supposed to stand for something more than just kind of for business for a, for a business venture. Um, you know, it's supposed to be about community and sportsmanship and collective endeavour. And you know, I, I think we're asking too much if we're saying that in a global world that football clubs can't be owned by these these people now, but they have to be able to 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 call them out. And I, you know, there's been aspects of Manchester City support. For, for example, I mean, mainly online. We see this online, who really are seem willing to to gloss over anything, uh, and I really hope that that doesn't happen with Newcastle support. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at UH1.com. That's UH1.com. There was an interesting piece in the Times this week from Matthew Syed on Dennis Irwin, the invisible genius, as he's called. Syed believes every team has a star, such as Thierry Henry and other types of genius, such as N'Golo Kante. But there should be a third category, as Matthew explains. He says players whose genius is only fully glimpsed over a full season, players who do the small things well, who enlarge the possibilities of those around them, but who do so with such consistency, match after match, week after week, that they become a kind of glue or fulcrum or 
or some other metaphor that conveys the centrality of their role to the functioning of the collective. So we thought, why not have our own little nominations for the Invisible Genius Dennis Irwin Award 2020? Gregor, should we start with you? Who would get your nod? I'll go for Darren Fletcher. I think ah. Ferguson actually compared uh, Fletcher to Irwin when he was 22. I was I did a little look back um, earlier on and there was a piece in the Manchester Even News where he was, you know, Fletcher wasn't very popular at that at that time among the fans but you know that was in a stark contrast to how he was how he was uh how he was viewed by his teammates and by the manager and I, and he said I he compared him to Irwin he said I think supporters will come to see um Fletcher in the, in the same way and I don't think there's any it's actually a coincidence that Manchester United have had a few of these players I think if you ask anyone who played with John O'Shea they they, they just heap praise on him and you know he's very un sort of spectacular player Wes Brown's another one. I think I think uh, Ferguson put a lot of weight in these in these players and kind of, you know, it's like a a bedrock for for the the real ta- the real kind of talents and mercurial talents to go and and win the game. Um, so Fletcher, I think, when he missed the Champions League final in two thousand and nine, yeah, I think he, he got a pretty dubious red card against Arsenal in the semi, um, and missed the final against Barcelona when Manchester United were given the absolute runaround. Um, I think people, you know, there were people bemoaning the fact he wasn't available in that game. And look, Barcelona were that was the peak Barcelona, but people thought he would, he could have, you know, he was an athlete in midfield. He could have been a real kind of uh, addition for their team in that day. Um, Michael Carrick's another one you could say it about. But anyway, I, I think Darren Fletcher because he's one of those players where vers- versatility it doesn't always do your reputation outside the dressing room much good and I th- you know you're, you're put in the right wing and he's not a right winger but he did a good job for the team he, fans didn't appreciate him the same way that the teammates did um, but someone who played nearly 350 games for Manchester United won five Premier League titles the League Cup the FA Cup the Champions League uh, he was a hugely popular kind of member steadfast member of the, the dressing room I think as time goes on, people will reflect on the job that, that Fletcher did in much the same way as, as Dennis Irwin. Okay, so it is Darren Fletcher that gets your nod. Uh, Alison, do you agree or have you got somebody else? Oh, I don't I don't disagree with uh, with, 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 with that um, analysis, but my unsung <laughs> hero of the Premier League era is um, Branislav Ivanovic. Oh. Because I think, I think people think of him as lumbering and big perhaps I think people think he's famous for the moment when Jeff Shreves told him he wasn't um, going to be able to play in the 2012 Champions League final because he picked up a booking and he just looked like the look on his face was just so shocked and mournful and everyone said Jeff Shreves just shot Bambi Um, (laughs) but in fact he he is he's certainly a player I have always thought was amazing I think because he he, he, he had a horrible start at Chelsea when he signed from Locomotive uh, and he nearly left and it turned round for him when he scored twice at Anfield in Champions League quarterfinal in 2009 and then he never looked back. I mean, this is a player who's who's won everything in English football, seen all the managers come and go at Chelsea and has only ever had, after that faltering start, when I don't think they knew what he was. Was he a full-back, a centre-back? What was he? And the fact is, he's incredibly adaptable 
and he comes up with great goals. He scored the crucial goal against Napoli on the way to the 2012 final. He scored the winner, winner in the Europa League final in 2013. But I mean, it's mainly his his attitude, uh, his resilience, his sort of fighting for the cause persona. I think underpinned everything that Chelsea did in his time there. And but I don't, I just don't think he gets the the praise he deserves. Partly, part, partly, partly because we tend to. I don't know. Go for the sort of the more elegant style players. But when he's in full, when he was in full running mode, he, there was a there was a balletic quality to the way he controlled the ball. I understated intelligence and so useful to to. And I reckon if he took a poll of all the players he played in his time at Chelsea, he would get in the top three spots of of most valuable player as in terms of helped you win things. Gregor, as a, a former defender, can you appreciate Ivanovic then? Absolutely, yeah. I agree. He was kind of he was deceptive in his sort of athleticism. He does look like a big kind of bruiser. <laughs> um yeah. but he was deceptive and he in he you know quite nimble nimble footed and um and he was good going forward as well. He was he was I agree, that's a that was a good good shout. Um I think you know it was, it was a great it was a really good piece from, from Matty's side. I think I think calling it genius is is perhaps stretching it a little bit, but I, th- I absolutely agree that there are players and teams that they're, they're they're sort of far more valued within the four walls of the, dr- the dressing room. This is in almost every dressing room than than the, than among the supporters in the stands. Um, it's a peculiar thing that is. You know, I, you understand that that supporters enjoy watching the kind of the flair players and the the guys who go and win you the game. But you think you could still be kind of appreciation for the for the people who are the platform upon which they're allowed to go and express themselves. And it's just not always the case. This week marks the 31st anniversary of the Hillsborough disaster, when 96 Liverpool fans died when a crush developed during the club's FA Cup semi-final with Nottingham Forest. Liverpool players, staff and supporters have observed a minute's silence to remember fans who lost their lives. A final memorial service was due to be held at Anfield, but had to be postponed due to the coronavirus pandemic. Instead, Jurgen Klopp has delivered a message to the families, survivors and Liverpool supporters. You have our thoughts, you have our prayers, and most of all, you have our love. You'll never walk alone, said the Liverpool manager. Alison, as a Liverpool fan, what are your memories of that fateful day back in 1989? Uh, Well, I was in... um... I was in Blackpool working in another life at a conference and I was driving along the motorway as it all unfolded. And my first, well, it's surreal. You can't believe it's happening. And because it unfolded sort of in horrible slow motion, it meant every every bulletin was another <gasps> gasping moment of, of horror. But I was, as you would be, concerned about people I knew. And um, our family friends, the the people who took me to Anfield for my first game, they they are so into Liverpool. I knew some of them would be there. So I asked my mum, are they there? And she said, no, they, 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 they couldn't go. They're not there. So I was, you know, selfishly just relieved that the people I knew weren't there. But it turned out um, they had gone and they were... They were in... Uh, they were around 20, 20... Brother and sister, 20, 22 years old. They'd managed to get tickets, hadn't told their parents they were going. And they got separated in the crush. And they were badly hurt. 
I won't go into detail, it's their story, not my story, but the most awful thing was they both both thought the other had died because they'd seen them veer off and get crushed. And so they had to spend the rest of that day going through the morgue, looking at bodies, waiting to see each other. And I know it's something they've never got over. Fortunately, they both survived. But to go through that, absolutely appalling. And I know it was worse for the people who actually did find people who were dead. But you just think, oh, my goodness. And yet that is such an appalling thing. And yet, and yet, so much of the early narrative was about blame. Ridiculous, really, that we live in a society that wants to do that. Um, jump to conclusions and um, a bit like what we were talking about confirmation bias earlier there was this sort of view that oh yeah scousers must have been pushing and doing the wrong thing and it was, it was amazing the the strength of the families to make sure that those horrible accusations were proven to be wrong and they fought and they fought and they fought and it's a shame that, that it, was, it was going to be the last the last gathering such gathering for the um the Hillsborough families they will they will gather when this is all over when covid is over and it'll probably be a a double memorial really for for, for local people who've who've succumbed to the pandemic and and people who are related to those who died but i just any any time you talk about it with anyone it it still churns up emotion i think it does it because football i went into football and sports journalism because i knew I would struggle to write about death or sad things. I wanted to write about joy, joy, joy. And I think that's why Hillsborough touches so many people because it was a day all about joy, all about joy, and it turned out to be so bloody horrible. Mm. You've been speaking to some legends, haven't you, of both the red and blue side of Liverpool this week? Yeah. Um, I spoke to Steve McMahon and Graeme Sharp, um, who were both... Both played in the FA Cup final uh, that followed the rescheduling of of the semi-final between Forest and Liverpool. And um, so I thought, well, let's talk about whether there are any parallels with the current situation. Because a lot of the conversation at the moment is, should we be thinking about football? Should we be even trying to plan to play football? Because some things are more important. And that, of course, was the debate at the time after, after, after the deaths. There were people who said, why are we talking about football? It doesn't matter. And um, Steve McMahon, you know, you could feel it, hear it in his voice. He's still absolutely passionately convinced that playing the final was the correct thing to do. He, he, he says because he talked to families and they said, yes, we want you to play. And he, he feels like it's given them another memory alongside the terrible memory that there was something, something good and a coming together of Merseyside on that day. Or as Graeme Sharp um, said, you know, he just didn't think it was the right thing to do because there was just a black cloud over the day and it felt wrong to be playing football. Both views are completely valid, of course. But interestingly, emerging from that, Steve McMahon felt um, that football is still a priority today and we should be talking about when we play it and it'll be a very important thing to bring communities back together. And Graham Sharp said, I'm just not interested. I don't know why we're talking about football. Like it's, it's really unimportant. We should be t- talking only about our health and our safety and so on. So it's interesting, isn't it, that the role football plays, it does, to some people, seems over-elevated and maybe self-obsessed. But I do, I do think there's some validity in thinking that 
it's a very useful thing, football, in terms of providing an outlet and punctuating sadness and bringing an end to things and a sort of sense of rebirth and community and joy and so on. But it, 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 the, the, the parallels were fascinating. Mm, yeah, I suppose, Gregor, we can, as Alison has pointed out, relate it to the current situation that we are going through. And, and there will be people who will be saying, how can we even talk about football coming back when we are no closer to, to getting through this pandemic? Yeah, and I think it's one of these things where there's not really a right or a wrong answer. I don't think I completely understand people who 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 make that that, that argument. And personally, I mean, just speaking personally, I think that anything that gets you back to any semblance, semblance of normality, or I think football can even be kind of a bit of a balm that soothes 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 a wound. And I think part of that is just a return to to normality and the sort of and also the kind of the love and emotion and, and affection that people have for their football clubs and for the game itself. So, um, I, I thought it was a great piece, and and uh, it's not it's not really a kind of a, uh, a correlation that you I would immediately have leapt to mind, but it, it worked very well, and it was kind of um, I, I think that I think the the return of football will will do a lot of people a lot of good. Mm. Well, that is it for now. Many thanks to Gregor and to Alison as well. You may find yourself with some more time on your hands in the coming weeks. So do remember you can subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times to enjoy award-winning journalism online and on your smartphone or tablet. It's just a pound a week for an eight-week trial. Search The Times subscription for more information. We will be back with you on Monday for the very latest game podcast. So stay safe and keep yourself well. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.